every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they have no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and who has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. In chapter 9, verses 11 to 12. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught up in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, speak to us through these words. Uh, Help us to see uh, what they mean for us. Uh, It's the way we uh, live our lives each day, uh, the way we interact with others each day. But Father, I pray more than anything that as we look at your word, we will be reminded of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May that be the thing that we build the foundation of our lives upon. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Many of you know uh, that I... uh, uh, every semester teach uh, a course or two at a couple of uh, uh, local universities in the religious studies departments, and uh, uh, I give very interesting assignments. I've learned when it comes to grading, make sure you like the assignment, so it's actually interesting to you when you grade it. So I uh, have tailored assignments over the years, and what I do is I, I ask my students to write a couple papers. Uh, one of the papers is uh, on uh, their own personal spiritual biography, how they make sense of spiritual things. I ask them to write on things about what they believe about the afterlife and, and what they believe about the meaning of suffering. And, and none of the students really like the assignments uh, in and of the moment when they're due and having to write those papers. But very often a lot of students come after the fact and say, you know, I'm really thankful that you made me uh, write about those things. Because honestly, I've never really thought about them. Uh, I've never had to think through the implications of what it is that I believe. And I think part of that is because we live in a culture that often blinds us to the transcendent. And we always end up focusing only on the material. And that's what this book of Ecclesiastes calls living under the sun. And that's something that our culture has taught us. It has is, it is taught us to be indifferent to these things. This is a learned indifference on the part of most in our culture. Uh, James K.A. Smith used a baseball illustration to describe this way of thinking. He said this. He said, like the roof on Toronto's sky dome, 
the heavens are beginning to close, and we barely notice, because our new focus is on this plane had already moved the transcendent to our peripheral vision at best. We are so taken with the play on this field that we don't lament the loss of the stars overhead. And in all this comes the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you've been with us, you'll know that uh, Ecclesiastes is a unique book. And as you approach it, you have to realize a little bit about what's going on in this book. We have a a guide in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, His name is in some places translated Koheleth, uh, but most often it is translated the preacher. And what our guide does is he forces us to answer the questions that we sometimes would rather not like to think through. He forces us to follow through on the implications of the way we live and how we structure thinking about the world around us. And what he does is he he engages us in a great experiment. And in that experiment, what he does is he searches for meaning in life under the sun. And that is the key to understanding this book. Uh, He uses the term under the sun to describe a purely secular way of looking at the world. It's a way of looking at the world that has really no regard for God whatsoever, doesn't think about God, doesn't take God into account. And the question that he asks throughout this big experiment is this, can we find meaning under the sun? Can we find meaning in life with no regard to God at all? If you've been with us, you'll know that the preacher has taken us on several searches in order to figure out whether there's meaning apart from God. And one of the first searches is the search of achievement and success. And it went like this, let me work really hard, let me achieve all sorts of great things, let me succeed in all the things of life and find if there is meaning there. I was reminding of it this week, I I saw an article in USA Today, um, and the the article in USA Today talked about the rise of the the side hustle. Have you heard about this before? Uh, Four in ten of all Americans now have what's called a side hustle. Um, which really is just a side job or a side project. So as if Americans don't work hard enough, we now have to have a second job. Four in ten Americans have a second job now. And you have to ask, what is driving this in our culture? Well, I think a lot of it is what we read in the book of Ecclesiastes. What drives most of it is the desire to achieve to find meaning and purpose in our work and in our achievement, to build our identity around our work. And what the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes is, is this. Those things have value. Work, success, achievement have value, but they cannot, at the end of the day, provide meaning. They leave us empty because time and death erases the memory and achievements of all of us. So he goes on this search for achievement and success, and after he finds out that that is a dead road, he takes us on another search, and that search is the search of pleasure. 
If I can't make life find meaning in my work, then let me engage in pleasure. Let's at least enjoy life. Maybe the pleasures of life or building our own paradise can bring us meaning. But he discovered that that path was empty too. One author said this, that the loneliest people in the world are those who have exhausted pleasure and come away with nothing. So meaning can't be found in our work, achievement, success, nor can it ultimately be found in pleasure. But there's one last big question that the book of Ecclesiastes asks, and it's this. Can we make sense of the world by living only under the sun without any regard for God? And the topic he looks at in order to answer this question is the topic of justice. Can we make sense of justice in an under-the-sun living? Verse 16 says this, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there is wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. This past month, uh, I went back and read uh, Man's Search for Meaning. I thought that was an appropriate book to read while doing a sermon on a series on Ecclesiastes. Uh, Man's Search for Reading uh, was written by uh, a psychiatrist from Austria named Viktor Frankl. And uh, in 1942, uh, Viktor Frankl was captured by the Germans along with his entire family, uh, his parents, his wife, his brother and sister, And tragically, uh, throughout the Holocaust, he lost pretty much everyone in his family. His parents were killed, uh, his brother was killed, and he was uh, shipped off to Auschwitz uh, and was transferred from one uh, concentration camp after another uh, until he was liberated in 1945. But at that point, he'd pretty much lost everyone in his family. I think uh, it was only his sister that survived uh, the Holocaust alongside with him. But Frankl believed something that was really interesting. He believed that what makes humanity unique, what makes it different from everything else in creation, is humanity's search for meaning. He said that life itself is a quest for meaning. So in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he begins to ask really profound questions. Can meaning be found in the context of suffering? Can humanity find meaning in places like Auschwitz? Can meaning be found in a world that often is characterized by injustice? Can it be found in a world where it feels like to all of us we are merely just the playthings of fate? And what he's doing is he's actually asking the very same question that the preacher asks in the book of Ecclesiastes. And when you get to these sections, we read it before, when you get to these sections, uh, you realize that they are very poignant and they are very intense. It's as if uh, the writer, you've really struck a nerve when it comes to this topic with the writer of Ecclesiastes. And if we're honest, you and I have all been in that place before when it comes to the topic of justice and injustice in our world. We've seen moments where the innocent are punished and moments where the guilty get off free, where the the wicked are treated as righteous and the righteous are treated as the wicked. 
We've seen the powerful abuse their power for their own personal gain, and in the process, the powerful end up oppressing the weak. We also have looked at our world, and we've seen that the cries of those who are oppressed seem to go unheard day after day and year after year. We have to conclude often that justice is wildly imperfect in our world. Now, I have to tell you, in a moment of heavenly irony, I wrote this sermon while sitting at the Baltimore City Courthouse serving jury duty this week. And it was a great reminder that we live in a culture and a world where where justice and matters of justice are often incredibly imperfect at best. Because we all witness injustice every day in our culture. We can see it as we watch the news. But we also personally experience injustice almost every day or on a daily basis. Perhaps you have been unfairly judged or unfairly passed over for some sort of work promotion. Or or maybe you've been blamed for something that you didn't do. Uh, We all know what it's like to be the victim of injustice. These things are, are almost common in our culture, in our world today. But here is the the preacher's point in the book of Ecclesiastes. His point is this, that if you live under the sun, if you live without any regard to God, that injustice will ultimately never be resolved or made right. The powerful will constantly oppress with no ultimate repercussion. The guilty will never face what they ultimately deserve. The cries of the oppressed will ultimately remain unheard. Because if you live under the sun, in this under the sun living, you have to come to terms with the fact that time and chance rule the day, that justice doesn't. And that's what he concludes here, verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Doesn't it feel like, day in and day out, often, as one commentator wrote, that our lives are simply swung from one extreme to another by tidal pull by a tidal pull of forces that we do not control. To use the poem Invictus, we are not the master of our fate, nor are we the captain of our soul. Uh, George Sargent was uh, a therapist uh, who picked up on this idea, and uh, he argued that we all have to come to terms with these things, and we all have to come to terms with learned meaninglessness. And, and he came to that conclusion when he was interacting with a, therap- a therapist who gave him this advice. He said, George, you must realize that the world is a joke. There is no justice. Everything is random. Only when you realize this will you understand how silly it is to take yourself seriously it just is. There's no particular meaning in, the, in, in what decision you make today about how to act. You see, the preacher in Ecclesiastes takes this same conclusion of meaninglessness, and he even takes it 
to probably the darkest point in the entire book of Ecclesiastes when he says in chapter 9 that at the end of the day, we are all better off dead. Or even better, we are better off having never lived. He says that in chapter 9. And that's what's made everybody read this book and say, wow, this is interesting that this is in the Bible. What a cheery book. What a way for us to think about life. But here's what he's doing. He's really doing two things throughout this whole book. He's showing us how hard it is to live under the sun and at the same time think positively about life. He says you either have to embrace this learned meaninglessness about life or you just have to stick your head in the sand and not really think through the implications of how you are living. So that's one of his objectives. And the other is this. He is poignantly showing us in palpable terms the hopelessness of life without God. And friends, the more we see the hopelessness of our lives without God, the more sweeter becomes the hope that we do have in a relationship with God. Because what he does throughout his discussion is he shows us the hope of divine justice. We see it in in chapter 5, verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones above them. You see, the scriptures are clear about, uh, about many things about justice. One of it is that the scriptures assure us that time and chance do not really rule the day, even though sometimes that is what it seems. The scriptures instead tell us that all things happen according to the providence and the sovereignty of God. That he is active, conserving, and regulating, and governing all things around us. The scriptures also assure us that one day God will come again. And when he comes again, he will bring right to all the wrong that exists in this world. The scriptures tell us there is divine judgment and there is a divine judge who sees all things. And we can take comfort in the fact that the cries of the oppressed will not go on for all of eternity. That those oppressors will at one day receive the just punishment that they deserve. In fact, the book of Revelation says this, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he has done. And in that moment, the scriptures are clear that the righteous will be rewarded and the wicked will be punished. But the scriptures also tell us this. They also teach us that the most powerful moment in divine justice came in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. The gospel tells us that when Jesus Christ, God's Son, hung on the cross, He bore the divine judgment of God. The scriptures tell us that when He hung on that cross, He atoned for our sins, opening up the door of grace so that we can be given the very thing that we don't deserve, the unmerited favor of God. And in the cross, he who was innocent 
became guilty so that we who are guilty could be made innocent in the eyes of God. You see, friends, only in the character of God manifest in the gospel can you and I really make sense of the injustice in the world that is all around us. Only in the gospel can we find hope in a world that often feels so hopeless. Only in the gospel can we ultimately trust God with the personal injustices that we fall victim to each and every day, and only in the gospel can we trust God with the systemic injustices that exist in our world as well. Now, make no mistake, it doesn't mean that you and I don't work to correct injustice in our world. In fact, I think being very productively angry about injustice is both a right and good thing that God calls us to do. But what this simply means is this, that there are times where we simply need to trust in God and the work of God with the injustices in our world. So at the very end of this book, at the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes, after all of these searches and after all of these hard and difficult questions and all of this, frankly, depressing material, the preacher comes to the great uh, conclusion of his experiment. And he says his conclusion very briefly at the end of chapter 12. He says this, This is the end of the matter, or this is the end of his experiment. All has been heard. Here's the conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For your God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is his conclusion for us. Fear God and keep his commandments. Recognize the emptiness and the fruitlessness of all the other roads that promise meeting but don't deliver, and instead build your life on the foundation of this. Fear God and keep his commandments. What is he saying? He's saying that the key to redemption in life is a life-giving relationship with God. And as we look on that from the eyes of the New Testament, the key to redemption in this life is a life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ. In Him and only in Him can true meaning and purpose and identity be found in life. Whenever wisdom literature talks about this idea of fearing God, it means something that is so much more than just being afraid of Him. Instead, it means being in such a precious, life-giving relationship with God that there is nothing that you would ever want to do to upset or cause any harm to that relationship because it has become so precious to you. In short, it is a relationship of love. And what Viktor Frankl said in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, that I thought was so profound was this. He said this, I understand how a man who has nothing left in this world still may know bliss, be it only for a brief moment, in the contemplation of his beloved. You see, what he was saying is that meaning is found in love. 
and in being loved. And friends, this is what is offered to you in the gospel. Because in the gospel, you are loved to the uttermost by a God who gave himself for you. And in the gospel, you are called to love him and trust him with all that you are. Let's pray.